Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Has the news got you unsettled and worried? Feeling uncomfortable with the absolute state of things? Well, one way to help that unnerving feeling of discomfort is by heading over to british-boxers.com where they do knockout undies and nightwear and you'll be as snug as a bug in some very nice pants as you swear in despair at the television. Not only do British boxers have luxurious two-fold cotton on all of their clothes, but they're also a lovely ethical bunch who respect workers' rights, manufacture all their stuff with minimal waste, and, I mean, actually, they're almost too nice a bunch. It's ridiculous. Hasn't anyone dug up any dirt on them? Have they ever returned a library book back late or something? Wow, no, not even... Oh my goodness. Well, if you grab great garms from BritishBoxers.com, then use the code PARPOLBRO15 at the checkout and you'll get a swanky 15% off whatever you buy, which will hopefully make you feel less sad that you're just not as good as them. Sorry, I'm just projecting now. British-Boxers.com. They must have once done swears at someone's pocket. No, not even that. Bonkers. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that has now been going for 65 times the amount of days Kwasi Kwarteng was Chancellor for. I'm Tin and Duyeb and this week as the brand new, new, new Chancellor and who gave acid to that green bean, Jeremy Hunt, reverses almost all of the mini-budget tax measures, I think it's great that we finally have a viable opposition to the UK government in charge. Oh wait, oh, oh, oh dear. Sometimes, in times of crises, it's really reassuring to see a familiar face appear, to step in and offer some hope that someone, somewhere, has it all in hand, and maybe we don't have to wave by as we disappear into a sinkhole of chaos and piss. Unfortunately for the UK, we don't have that at all, and instead we've been landed with formaldehyde mascot Jeremy Hunt again, with his crazy beady eyes like he's permanently hypnagogic, and who's been dug up from the early days of austerity to play a part in the unnecessary sequel. It does feel like the government have realised they're so incredibly unpopular, perhaps they should bring back a character from the early seasons that people may be nostalgic in hatred for. Or maybe it's like the finale of Neighbours where all the characters come back to wave goodbye before it's killed off for good and we're just days away from a shot only in black and white John Major doing a scene with disgraced MP the disgraced Liam Fox about how they remember the old days of the cabinet where shit chancellors would last more than a month. Jeremy Hunt is supposedly the man to bring confidence and stability to the markets and indeed the country, as though we've all got a mental block on him being the man that hid behind a tree from junior doctors, can't remember where his wife's from or how many houses he owns, and pushed through the backdoor privatisation of the NHS like only someone who lurks near rear entrances could do. Of course, what could make us feel confident that the country is now under control, quite like the government embracing cancel culture and using it against themselves? The new, new, new Chancellor has stopped everything that was promised in the last month from happening, but insists the Prime Minister and anthropomorphised brain freeze, Liz Truss, is still in charge. You know, just without making any decisions or doing any of the things she said she would definitely do. It's a bit like how Bernie in Weekend at Bernie's was definitely still hosting his party, but also dead and merely carted around by other idiots. 
The UK will pay its way, says Hunt, but does that mean we'll survive this economic crash or that we'll all just be paying for years for the absolute fuckery of a bunch of thundercunts that we somehow have in charge? Thank God Jeremy Hunt has only had to reverse a mini-budget, as we all know, had it been a full-size one, there'd have been every chance it had got wedged in place, like the ever-given in the Suez Canal. Whereas now the government are just freely U-turning so much, it's a shock they haven't caused a whirlpool or gained their own small moon. The pound did rise after Hunt's statement, but then who wouldn't get some sort of an uplift from knowing that that gangly twat had to put loads of work in for something that will no doubt be completely irrelevant in about five minutes when someone else gets their go as Chancellor for the week. Is there any point in me going back over how we got here when there's every chance by the time you finish listening to this we'll have another bunch of new faces in charge and then another and another until the Tory party is just wheeling out anyone who once took one of their leaflets and didn't use it as toilet paper or who's ever scowled at a baby so fits with basic party principles and they can have a go at running things just so the Conservatives don't have to willingly go extinct in a general election like dinosaurs holding a meteor welcoming party. Do you guys even remember the last Chancellor? Quasi Kwarteng with his face somehow entirely made of concentric circles? I know it seems like it was 400 years ago, but he was in charge of the country's economy just last week. Yeah, I know, right? I mean, it's hard to remember, but he was right there, crashing the pound yet again like it had once murdered his parents in an alley, and now his life mission is to enact revenge by dressing up as Stag Flatman. There he was saying, I'm not going anywhere, which is a lie, as at the time he was in Washington DC to visit the IMF. But then luckily for them, as God knows, he'd probably have stamped on all their indoor plants, insisting he was helping them grow. Luckily for them, Kwarteng then had to make an early flight back to London, presumably not in business, as he'd have just trashed it. Before he'd even landed, the news had broken that Kwarteng was no longer Chancellor and he released a half-hearted resignation but was definitely shoved out the door letter that said, I'm sorry if you feel your pound had crashed. And that was it, just 38 days in the job and then fired. And you do have to wonder if all of his mates in the city had put bets on him shorting his career. And so, Quasi Kwarteng was replaced by Jeremy Hunt, a man so suited to be Chancellor during these trying times, as history shows when he's faced with a crisis, he runs away and hides from them for weeks on end. The Prime Minister took to the podium to do the world's quickest press conference, where Liz Truss said she was determined to see through what she had promised. But she's actually U-turned on all of it, so what on earth is left? Oh, there was that bit where she said she's ready to hit the nuclear button if necessary, or maybe it was when she mistook Derbyshire for Gloucestershire or insisted she wouldn't recognise Russia's sovereignty over Russia. One of those might come through, I guess. Trust said she wanted a country where people can get good jobs and then presumably fuck them up so badly within a month that they then have to leave them again. Trust said the corporation tax rise that her leadership rival and background extra for Big Mouth Rishi Sunak had campaigned for would now go ahead even though she'd campaigned against it. And then on Monday, Jeremy Hunt scrapped nearly all of the mini-budget and reduced the energy bill support plan so it ends in April, just after last week Liz Trust criticised Labour for having an energy plan that only lasted six months. If any more rugs are pulled out from under her, she'd be an 80s public safety video about a fatal polished floor. Liz Truss isn't able to do any of the things she said she would, not least because it was all mad shit that would fuck everything up. And so now, where does she go if she's able to go anywhere without getting lost looking for the exit? She's got none of her policies and absolutely no personality, so is she now just going to have to retrain in cyber? And more importantly, is Liz Truss now part of the anti-growth coalition that she's against too? Or is Jeremy Hunt? Or is Quasi Kwarteng? And why won't this anti-growth coalition stop growing? And who's growing pies now? Will there be any at all? Or are we entering a pieless era altogether? And if so, will it mean the demise of the upper crust? Several Conservative MPs that you haven't heard of and don't care about and won't have jobs soon have all called for the Prime Minister to go. There are rumours of a secret plot to get rid of her, though it's not that secret as it's in all the newspapers and chances are it's just having a general election but not telling Liz Truss that it's happening and she will never ever find out. One source said that serious people in the party were discussing calling on Trust to resign, which can't be true as there aren't any of those in the Conservatives. I mean, serious people? What, the ones who said we had to back Brexit in order to get bendier bananas and that former PM and whatever the opposite of a stress relief toy is, Boris Johnson, was definitely ambushed by cake? There is some concern about who will replace Liz Truss as party leader and prime minister, as though they couldn't just put some eyes on a mop and it would do a better job. Some rumours suggest Rishi Sunak could be brought in, with what if loose women merged with a roadblock Penny Morden as his deputy or co-prime minister, or I guess just someone in the room who could keep explaining why no, he's not allowed to live in America anymore and his wife does have to pay tax. 
This idea, though, is like saying, well, no one likes it and it doesn't work, but have we tried having two of the things people hate instead? Replacing a useless fucking Tory leader who's ruined the country with two useless fucking Tory leaders who've ruined the country is not only failing to see the wood for the trees, but then chopping down all the trees till they can see the wood more clearly and wondering why the planet's dead. The other proposed option is Defence Secretary and man who shares 99.9% of his DNA with a donut, Ben Wallace, who'd make a great Prime Minister based on the time he was fooled by prank callers into thinking he was talking to the Ukrainian leader, the times he's lied about his position in the army, and his refusal to let anyone poke around into his private life, like he's definitely, definitely done loads of wrong things. No wonder he has made Defence Secretary for two administrations in a row, as he's pretty defensive about everything. Former Culture Secretary and rubber chicken with hair Nadine Dorries said that there is only one unity candidate available, Boris Johnson, who has a mandate from party members. Presumably she doesn't mean MPs, but all the people he got drunk with at number 10 during the lockdowns. Nothing has been able to happen anyway till head of the 1922 committee and man who looks like he eats bicycle parts for lunch, Graham Brady, returned from holiday this week, and by the state of things he'd have been within his right to say flights were delayed and get a few more days at the hotel before having to deal with it. And yet again, the entire future of the country is in the hands of people who consistently make all the worst choices about the future of the country. Will Liz Truss be Prime Minister by the end of the week, or day, or lunchtime? She didn't show up to the urgent question about the economy for the first half of it, and made Penny Morden do it instead, as the Prime Minister was detained on urgent business. By that, they probably mean working out where to have her leaving drinks, which, let's face it, could happen anywhere, as no one's going to attend, and she won't be able to find her way in. Mordant actually said in the Commons, I can confirm the Prime Minister isn't hiding under her desk. Well, I suppose it's not hiding if she dropped a pen down there, went to find it and now can't find her way back out. It's hard to say how much longer Liz Truss will be Prime Minister for, but I'm sure whatever the Conservatives sought out for their fifth attempt to get a good one who can actually do their job, I'm sure it'll work out that time, right? Fifth time lucky is what they say, isn't it? Fifth time lucky. Like sweaty chops for a face, David Cumberland said back in the day, the Conservatives don't reward failure except with peerages and stuff like that. And in the meantime, what do these new, new budget policies mean for you? Well, at the moment, it means your bills are rising and you don't get a tax cut, and in six months they'll rise even more, and rich people are still doing okay, but who knows, could be different in a week's time and then probably different the week after that. There's every chance that by December we'll be back to some sort of bartering system where people will be swapping potatoes for cows. The country is in the same place it was by the end of August, but with loads more time wasted and even more evidence that the Conservatives are shitter than we thought possible. What is clear is that now Tory MPs are saying the Prime Minister is toast, which is really unfair to toast, as actually it lets people down very rarely and nearly always does the job you want it to. Toast wouldn't cause as much damage as Liz Truss has within 40 days unless someone was really, really gluten intolerant or it got stuck in the toaster and burned and set fire to the whole house. OK, Liz Truss is toast, but the worst kind of house setting on fire making gluten intolerant people sad toast. And as long as she burns down the whole Tory party with her, then maybe, just maybe, she'll be found to have had at least one redeeming quality. In other policies that may not be policies by the time you hear this, Health Secretary and poor-gone-crack Therese Kofi spent the week clotheslining logic by insisting nurses can leave if they want to, as they've already had a pay rise. Presumably Kofi would run a restaurant by telling people the food isn't prepared to standards and tastes like shit, but they can fuck off if they don't like it, as she's provided watered-down ketchup. Then she said that poor people are richer than you think, which, with debt meaning they have minus nothing, only makes sense if you believe all poor people own is a black hole. Is Kofi cosplaying as an amalgamation of the worst villains from Dickens' novels? It's hard to say, but hopefully she'll go like they do and end up in prison or dying from spontaneous combustion. I suppose the latter is possible, as when announcing that pharmacies will be able to prescribe antibiotics to patients rather than GPs, Kofi admitted she shared her prescribed drugs with her friends and family, which is a breach of the 2012 human medicine regulation laws. Though, let's be fair, it's likely the only way any of her relations or pals could spend any time with her is if they're off their face on drugs. Liz Truss blocked a £15 million energy-saving public campaign that could have saved people £300 a year, with Number 10 saying they blocked it, as we're not a nanny state. And that's right, we're just run by people who have nannies. They don't want to tell you how to save money, as that's patronising, but no, you can't choose a new leader, as we have a handful of weirdos who'll do that for you in case you mess it up and don't pick an absolute fuckwad. 
US president and man who squints because he's constantly glimpsing the light just before death, Joe Biden, said Liz Truss's economic policies before they were all scrapped were a mistake. And that would mean it would be illegal to get rid of them in 22 states. Scottish First Minister and talking finger cot Nicola Sturgeon says independence is best for everyone, which must be new for her husband, and I feel sad that he had to find out that way. At a briefing on what the updated arguments for Scottish independence are, Sturgeon said Scotland would move to its own currency when the time was right. I suggest just after the next announcement from Jeremy Hunt, and then it's likely they'll be able to use the Scottish pounds to buy all of the British ones. And finally, the festival of Brexit is being investigated by public spending watchdog after it cost £120 million of public money, but visitor numbers were less than 1% of targets. Cost lots of money, hasn't benefited anyone and no one liked it. I think it sounds like a perfect representation of Brexit, if you ask me. I think to really get their money's worth, they should try and export it and see what happens. Oh, do you know how them city bods should gamble their money? By betting how long each episode of this podcast will last in terms of topicality. An hour after release? Minutes? Will it be ruined before it even comes out? Oh, the joys of a completely unstable, catastrophic political system and doing a political podcast at the same time. Um, So yeah, I'm very sorry if this gets to your ears um, by the time each and every bit of it doesn't even matter anymore. Uh, I did think about going through all the new budget decisions announced by Jeremy Hunt and then I realised it doesn't fucking matter, does it? They'll probably be different um, every day this week. What is the point who knows who the prime minister will be by the end of this week should i just play some hold music next week uh, on the podcast and you can kind of add your own up to the minute analysis or do i have to release a podcast every hour i would never i would never ever do that um i hope you're doing okay and you probably are as unlike me you're not keeping a constant eye on the news and feeling like at some point you'll wake up and think i really shouldn't have eaten that much cheese last night i didn't eat cheese last night and let me tell you i regret every single night that i don't so maybe that is what Liz Truss does, and it could explain a lot if all her policies were thought up after scoffing a ton of black bomber cheddar. Um, again, I've not really got much to say this week, except uh, thanks for listening, even though I'm sure this show now feels as helpful as a chocolate teapot. No way, I hate that phrase, because I would definitely eat a whole chocolate teapot. I wouldn't put tea in it, obviously, but by eating it, it would definitely be useful to me. That'd be a lot of chocolate. A cardboard teapot, that would be shit, unless it was part of an art installation of a cardboard kitchen. Look, I give in, okay? I'm just saying... You know, it's probably not very useful to you, but thank you for listening regardless. Thank you to James for the Kofi donation at ko-fi.com forward slash parpol bro. Thanks to those of you who are continuing to be part of the absolutely no rewards Patreon at patreon.com forward slash parpol bro. Even during the few weeks where you probably got charged like four billion times the amount due to the pound dropping against the dollar. Um, apparently you can switch your Patreon to pounds rather than dollars. But let's be honest, based on how it's going, you're probably best to switch it to something else entirely, aren't you? Organs, firstborns, I'm really not sure. Um, next week is half term so I'm going to just be doing a mini podcast as my time to write this will be severely limited by my agent whose current favourite pastime is running around with no clothes on singing songs as loudly as possible and trust me when I say um, that is not conducive to a good podcast happening but also I have no idea what I'm going to talk about next week will it be more of is this trust going to go any day there's another new budget I mean really you know it might not be a bad thing to have a week where I say that in slightly fewer minutes um right on this week though i have got a great guest uh, with dr roham alvandi talking to me about the situation in iran because yes other countries exist too even though it's very hard to remember when everyday our news is simply about things not happening like it's sort of reporting on a nationwide existential crisis or is it or are we what's happening no one knows <laughs> 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It can be hard to remember that other places in the world exist, let alone are going through their own national crisis when ours is such a regular roller coaster of shit nados. But if you look away from the revolving door of chancellors and Liz Truss's constant expression like she's just woken up from an accidental sleeping pill overdose, you'll see that there are a number of global stories right now very worth paying attention to. One is Iran, a country that since 1979 has been run by a government who are much like if the male online sidebar were in power, but you know, without the Islamophobia. For 40 years, the Islamic Republic have placed the country under harsh authoritarian rule, monitoring people and particularly women and enforcing restrictions on freedom of speech, strict dress code and embarrassing sweat patches. Oh no, sorry, no, sorry. That last one is the male online again. The country was already suffering from staggeringly high inflation. Yes, I'm still talking about Iran. Heavy international sanctions. Yet still Iran. A water crisis and regional tensions. While for years, the rest of the world has been highly concerned about the nuclear threat posed by Iran and its funding of many terrorist organisations. To summarise with an understatement, it's not been very fun times over there for quite a while. And then a few weeks ago, the Iranian morality police arrested 22-year-old Masa Amini in Tehran for wearing what they thought was inappropriate clothing. And they took her into custody where eyewitnesses say she was subject to police brutality and she fell into a coma and died three days later. A horrific tragedy and one that has echoed around Iran, a catalyst to protests that have seen Iranians rise up against the government. Over 200 protesters have been killed, many more injured and tear-gassed, and yet they are refusing to back down in a defiant and inspiring fight for human rights. And as I record this, a major fire has raged at the notorious Evin prison, where Iran's political prisoners are kept. This is the biggest challenge to the Islamic Republic since it took power in 1979 after the Iranian Revolution. So, is this the sequel, with hopefully a much happier ending for the country's citizens? Why has global support taken so long to arrive compared to, say, Ukraine? Or is it just that everyone's realised the last thing they need in amongst fighting the government is for Liz Trust to turn up, get lost in a room and generally make it worse? And could this be the end of the Iranian morality police till, you know, they get a regular column in the mail on Sunday? This week, I spoke to Dr. Roham Alvandi, an Associate Professor of International History at the London School of Economics. Roham specialises in the history of the US, the Cold War, and most importantly for this interview, of modern Iran. I asked Roham why the death of Masa Amini had had such an effect on the entire country, if this is a turning point in Iran's history, and just why Britain and much of the rest of the world have been generally crap at noticing what's happening there. I learned so much more from this interview than weeks of trying to read the tidbits of British news about the situation, and I'm so pleased that Roham had time to chat. I hope you find this as insightful and useful a conversation as I did. Hi, Roham. Thank you so much for having time to be on the podcast this week. Um, I-, I wonder if we could kind of start with an, with an overview of the situation in uh, Iran right now, because uh, the current protest, which has been going on for, for nearly a month now, started after the very, uh, very upsetting death in custody of Masa Amini. Um, and-, and I wondered, is that... Was that the sole catalyst? Uh, because obviously Islamic Republic's been in power since 1979. I'm, I'm assuming retaliation against them has been building for, for quite a while. Yeah, I mean, it, it reminds me of um, uh, the death of Mohammed Bouazizi uh, and, and the Arab Spring or the death of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement. So, yes, that was the immediate um, spark that caused this nationwide outrage you know at the at the death of um masa amini simply because she was deemed not to have uh correctly worn uh the veil under the uh, islamic republic's compulsory veiling laws but really what it touched upon was a raw nerve of anger that had been building you know for for years and years and years and years um there's just a massive reservoir of resentment and anger that has boiled over now. Um, uh, you know, for basically, Irani- Iranians have never really liked the idea of chaos, revolution. You know, they have had this experience of 1979, which turned out very badly for them. Um, and so for decades now, 
every opportunity they've been given, you know, to, 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 to show that they want peaceful democratic reform, they've taken it. And, and despite, you know, in, in the full knowledge that these are always, these were always imperfect choices for them, you know, in various elections over time, for example, but they've consistently given the Islamic Republic opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to, you know, peacefully reform itself. And the Islamic Republic never misses an opportunity to miss an opportunity, you know, and, and, and people are just completely fed up and they've reached the conclusion that reform is a dead end and that there's really no, no alternative, particularly for the younger generation, if they're going to have a future in this country, um, than for the Islamic Republic to go. And so that, I think, explains what you're seeing now for the last four weeks in Iran. This is, this is really beyond anything we've seen before. It's not a, a protest movement demanding that rights, the votes be counted. It's not a sort of protest about economic conditions in Iran. Um, and I think it goes beyond even um, uh, the huge anger and resentment about the treatment of women and compulsory veiling in Iran. Um, it, it is really a national uprising um, and uh, it's spread all throughout the country, cities large and small, um, almost every urban area in the country has been touched by this um, and it seems to transcend all kinds of demographics, you know, of, of age and gender and um, ethnicity and language groups. So it really is extraordinary. For those of us who are sort of Iran watchers, you know, this we've never seen anything like this. It, I mean, it's incredible to see from afar. And I, I'm very wary of, obviously, you know, because the death of, of Masa Amini was massively tragic and a really, really horrible event to hear about. But I, I wondered what it was... You know, you've said that the, the, this has been building and this event is now like nothing we've seen before, but it's been four decades of Islamic Republic rule. What was it about perhaps that incident or her? Was it was it that she's a younger person and it's caused the younger generations to fight back? I, I, I'm just curious as to what's made this happen after four decades. Yeah, well, it's remember that there have been many, many protests over the last um, four decades, particularly... Mm -hmm since uh, 2009, the, the huge protests that erupted in Iran in 2009 after a, a presidential election that was um, manipulated, the outcome of which was manipulated. Um, and then we, we've seen the kind of tempo of these protests building in the last few years, 2017, 2019. Um, but there's a long history of opposition, you know, to the Islamic Republic, but it's a regime that deals with opposition with... <laughs> brutality, I mean, really vicious um, brutality. And so um, it's never faced, I think, quite the challenge um, that it's facing today. Now, Mahsa Amini's death is uh, resonated, I think, so much precisely because she really could have been any young Iranian woman. I mean, she was this young um, woman from the Kurdish region of Iran, 22 years old, who was visiting Tehran was not doing anything really. It was it was just going about her business um, when she was nabbed by the morality police. And I think when you know when Iranians see that um, for for young Iranian women, of course they see themselves. They've they've all had experiences of dealing with the with the morality police, and women, of course, bear the brunt of the repression of this regime. You know they are in a special category. Um, uh, but that's half of the population of Iran, you know. Um, and then I think, and then I think for Iranian men, um, they are also deeply offended by this by this kind of treatment, um, and they see in Mahsa Amini their friends, their sisters, their um, compatriots, and it also deeply offends their sensibilities. I think it, what I found really interesting is you know the videos I've seen of of, of older people in Iran. Who are outraged by by what's happened to Massa? I mean, older men, older women. You know, even for relatively conservative older men, you know, it offends their um, sort of slightly out of date, chivalric sense of honor that you know that that a unarmed, innocent woman would be beaten in the streets um, just because of the way she's dressed. I mean, this it it really is the encapsulation of everything that is wrong, you know, with this regime.
I, I wonder if you could just sort of explain who the morality police are, because it's a phrase that we've heard a lot. And I feel like, um, as with, I mean, we'll get to this later, the coverage in the UK has not been that extensive um, or informative. Um, and, you know, I wonder if you could explain who the morality police are. And also, perhaps kind of, uh, you know, we, we talked about the repressive regime, but just how repressive have they been? What, is their, what has the Islamic Republic's rule been like on Iran since 1979? It's a very unusual you know, regime, because it's not just a dictatorship that um, limits civil and political rights. It's, 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 it claims to be an Islamic state. And uh, because of that, the state reaches down into the most intimate and private aspects of people's lives. You know, it wants to regulate how you dress. It wants to regulate what you eat. It wants to regulate the relationship between men and women. It wants to relationship, it wants to regulate who you love. It wants to, you know, so it permeates every aspect of your life. And and you can imagine that when you're living, you know, any of us, you know, when we're living through difficult times, um, in order to cope with difficult economic conditions or COVID or whatever it is, you know, um, we fall back on those personal freedoms, we fall back on those um, pleasures of our life, our family, our friends, you know, in order to be able to cope with that. And and for Iranians, you know, even that aspect, that private aspect of their life is not free from the intrusion of the state. And and that is something that's that's quite, you know, I think unique um, uh, in in the world today. Um, And that's where a lot of this anger and resentment comes from. In other words, you know, you can't live in the Islamic Republic and, and afford to be um, indifferent towards politics or, um, or, not ha- or, or be apolitical because, because the state won't leave you alone. It's, it's, not, it's not a condition where, you know, the state will say, well, okay, as long as you don't get involved in politics, you know, we leave you be. Um, they still want to regulate, you know, every aspect of your of your life. You know, it's, it's the way I tell, describe it to people is, you know, some sort of version of The Handmaid's Tale. Um, and so, uh, I think that is just that idea of sort of forcing people to live in some kind of utopian Islamic society is just, you know, horrendous and totally intolerable for people. Um, it's, it's, it's one thing when, you know, religion is a free choice. I mean, that should be everyone's free choice. Um, but you should also have the freedom from religion, not just of religion. And so, and, and that just doesn't exist um, in, in Iran. And so that element of secularism is really at the heart of this whole um, movement. And, and so the morality police uh, just sort of clarify exactly who they are. They are a yeah. group of kind of authorities who, who just sort of stamp down, make sure everyone's keeping to this kind of Islamic regime. Yeah, they're the, they're the people that are in charge of enforcing, you know, these rules. Um, they're uh, a sort of um, uh, branch of Iran's um, police and security forces who patrol the streets of Iranian cities in these, you know, um, green and white vans that everyone is used to seeing. Um, And they will just come up to people in the street um, and start harassing them. You know, why aren't you dressed properly? You know, uh, who's this person that you're with? You know, is this your husband? Is this your wife? You know, um, um, they'll go into cafes and restaurants and harass people who are sitting there, you know, having a meal or having a coffee. Um, and so it's a daily occurrence for Iranians, especially for young Iranians. And, you know, uh, when this whole uh, uprising kicked off, for the first couple of weeks, they, the, the regime kind of pulled these morality police off the streets. Um, but now we're seeing them creeping back into cities. Um, I've seen sort of extraordinary videos of um, a, a, a van full of young girls who'd been arrested by the morality police being attacked by young men who want to free these women, you know, and get them out of the clutch of the morality police. So this kind of sort of cat and mouse game, this, this um, constant daily sort of confrontation is, is going on as we speak, you know, in cities throughout Iran. Are you feeling like this is a, a turning point in Iranian history? I mean, it, it, you know, incredible to hear the process has been going on for nearly a month now. 
Um, and and do you feel like this could cause a toppling of of, of the Islamic Republic or? Are there still hurdles to democracy? I mean, uh, again, my knowledge on this is, is very limited, but as I was reading about how the Revolutionary Guard are also an issue, it's not just tackling the government, it's tackling them as well. So does that mean this could be a change or is this sort of the beginning of a, of a much longer uh, period for Iran? Well, I think, you know, we have to be careful not to get, you know, carried away by um, what we would like to see as opposed to what we actually are seeing. Um I do think that the foundations of the Islamic Republic are shaking. I mean, I, I and and I would confidently say that this is at least the beginning of the end of the Islamic Republic. But I don't think anyone can confidently predict how long that process is going to take. It could be months. It could be more than a year. We don't know. Um, but there's no doubt that for the first time in forty something, you know, forty three years now there is a national consensus in Iran that this regime has to go. And in other words, you know, the Islamic Republic has lost all legitimacy. And any regime, even an, even an authoritarian one, even a brutal one, you know, can't hold on to power without any authority. You know, it, it can't cling on just through brute force. I mean, we've seen that again and again and again in history. It's just a matter of time before... Um, the pressure builds to such a point that fractures begin to happen within the ruling elite and the whole thing begins to fall apart. Um, but we're not there yet. We're still, at the, we've only, we're only four weeks into this. Um, and I think there's still a, a long road ahead before we get to that point. So what I'm sort of looking out for, I think, as the next step is um, a general strike across the country. If because we've already seen strike action in various cities, shopkeepers, oil workers in the south and various other places. So if that can coalesce into some sort of coordinated national strike, that would absolutely paralyze the state. That would, And it would show the weakness of the state in the face of um, this movement. But, you know, it's very hard to organize anything like that, given the um, effectiveness of the security forces and their determination to stamp out, you know, um, um, this uprising. But um, we are already seeing, I think, some indications of divisions amongst the elite, you know, as to how to respond. Um, there's a few people that have sort of gone off message um, uh, talking about, um, well, you know, maybe we've made mistakes and maybe we need to actually engage in dialogue and so on, which is very different from what the Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei has been saying, which is to kind of blame all of this on outside powers and say that, you know, these protesters are all the agents of America and Israel and sort of nonsense like that that nobody believes. I mean, it's, it's very inspiring seeing such a people-led movement as well. I think there's something just incredible watching people say, no, we've had enough of this. And and I, and I wonder sort of because it's a people, I mean, you know, what's the kind of global response been? I know uh, the UK government announced, I think it was only a few days ago, that they were going to impose sanctions on the morality police. And I don't know the full details if that's just the people who work in the morality police or if it's other sort of <laughs> areas of government and society. But, you know, is, is that enough to support the Iranian people? What kind of global support should be given and and I suppose if it is a people led movement is it hard for their for global support to be given yeah i mean for the you know for the last 10 15 years whenever we've talked about iran what we've talked about is the nuclear program hmm. and that's been the focus of our attention is you know what are iran's nuclear ambitions how do we stop iran from building a nuclear bomb we don't want a nuclear arms race in the middle east we don't and i think there was a genuine concern that if some diplomatic solution is not found to that problem, we might find ourselves in another war in the Middle East, which nobody wants, you know. And that was a perfectly legitimate, I think, concern. The problem is, though, because we were so obsessed with centrifuges and enrichment and all this kind of stuff, we completely took our eye off the ball of what is actually happening in Iranian society. And all these changes that were bubbling away underneath all of this resentment and anger just kind of missed, I think, most sort of policymakers um, and, and the elites in Britain and the United States um, and elsewhere. And we, the whole focus was, you know, how do we engage with the Islamic Republic? How do we negotiate with the Islamic Republic? And I think now, because of what's happened in Iran, because of this people's movement in Iran, it has 
forced everyone to actually begin to rethink that that approach towards Iran and actually start taking into consideration not just what the Iranian regime wants or um, demands, but what the Iranian people want um, and demand. You know, um, and uh, that is that is the debate I think that's raging right now within Whitehall, within the U.S. government, in Brussels, and in other places. You know. What should we do? Um, my my sense is that it would really be a disaster if we just blithely pressed ahead with negotiations with the Islamic Republic and just ignored what is happening on the streets of Iran. I mean, that would really be a disaster and would send a terrible message to Iranians that you know we just don't care about your human rights and we don't care about your aspirations or demands we just want to make a deal with this regime and get this issue off the agenda so that we can deal with other other things you know that would be really disastrous i think this is the wrong time to be giving sanctions relief and concessions to this regime um i don't think that's what people in iran want us to be doing what would be a, a more sensible approach, I think, would be to at least suspend the negotiations for now and focus on not just nice words and statements of solidarity, but actual practical things that we could do to empower people in Iran, like um, helping them gain access to the internet and um, providing them um, with um, targeted sanctions on those people who are responsible for beating them, arresting them, harassing them, you know. So um, I'm, I'm really pleased that, you know, the UK government has rather belatedly started going down that road um, and, and some sanctions have been announced, um, some targeted sanctions, um, but um, we still have, you know, and that's a coordinated response, you know, with the US and Europe and, and other allies, but I think it's we're, we're still it's still really not enough. Um, it would be great, I think, if if the UK, the US, and others really made it clear to Iran that look, what you know, we're not going to sit at a table and negotiate with you while you are shooting young people in the streets and sending Iranian schoolgirls to psychiatric institutions for re-education, you know, because um, they're opposed to you. I think that would be a really a total moral cop out on our part. Why has um and you know I'm aware that I don't I don't watch all the news but it does feel like there hasn't been a lot of coverage it's it's popped up it's actually on the front page of the BBC News today as I'm talking to you so I feel like slightly belittling my point but I definitely don't feel like it's been as much considering the scale of it and also it's sort of commentary from political parties including like Labour and and you know not so Conservatives but all the political parties has also feels like it's been quite muted is is that partly you know uh as i make guesses here is that partly due with relationships with other countries in me such as uh, saudi arabia and and or is it to do with the fact that perhaps labor's history of with the middle east isn't been so great you know what's what are the reasons that, that come into this um that mean that that perhaps we're not hearing about this as much as i i feel we should be yeah i, th- I mean if you contrast it for example with you know how we've responded in ukraine you know it's it's like night mm. and day um, and it's quite interesting because actually what's going on in Ukraine and what's going on in Iran are actually connected to one another. I mean, the Iranian regime is one of the key allies of Putin. You know, Iran is providing drones to Russia, which Russia is using to kill Ukrainian civilians. So, you know, um, this should be a much higher concern both for Labour and for um, the Conservatives in, in the UK. This really shouldn't be a partisan issue. It should, there's no, I don't think there's a left-right view on this. There's just, there should just be a British um, view on this. Um, part of the hesitation, I think, is partly because, you know, there's a lot going on in the UK right now. We're pretty distracted with our own um, problems and our economy falling apart and our politics falling apart. So it's difficult for any issue to kind of climb up the, the news agenda. Um, but I think um, part of the problem also, particularly on, on the left, I would say, in the UK, is that, yeah, there is a reluctance to talk about, um, you know, intervening, on, in another Middle Eastern country after the debacle of the Iraq war. Um, and I think also, if we're really honest with ourselves, there is a kind of discomfort with um, the secularism of, of, of this movement amongst many on the left. You know, the image of 
Iranian women burning their headscarves, you know, doesn't sit well with a lot of people, I think, who are very concerned about, you know, Islamophobia and, and, and issues like that. And those are perfectly legitimate issues and concerns in a British context. But I think you have to understand that there's a big difference between burning a veil as a symbol of oppression in a theocracy in Iran that forces women to wear the veil, you know, and debating veiling in a democracy and in a free society like Britain where, you know, people have the choice of whether they want to wear the veil or not. And, and I think that distinction has been lost a little bit in um, in the debates I've seen, you know, on the left. Um, and I, re- I do hope that, you know, people who stand for a progressive Britain and a Britain that is engaged with the world, that's not inward looking, but is actually outward looking, will actually take an interest in what's going on in Iran. Um, and, you know, I hope that we, we haven't become so narcissistic as a society that every single thing that happens in the world, you know, we have to change the conversation to what it says about us rather than what's actually going on in, say, Iran or, or elsewhere. You know, this, this shouldn't be a conversation about Islamophobia in the UK. That's a legitimate issue, but that's not what this is about. You know, this should be a conversation about the, you know, rights and freedoms of, you know, of Iranians and where we stand on that. I really admire that hope and optimism. I can't see it happening, but I admire it. Um, <laughs> um, I wanted I've, uh, just a uh, well, final question, but I think actually uh, something else I wanted to add to this really, because I realised um, we were asking about what the w- global, what other countries should do, but what can what can general people do? Uh, uh, is there anywhere that kind of if listeners want to help people in Iran, are there charities, are there campaigns, are there things that people can reach out to? Um, and then sort of on top of that, just the question that I ask all the guests really is, you know, apart from yourself, who are the people that we should be, reading and following for, for actually good information about what's happening there? Absolutely. There are, there are plenty of things we can do. I think those of us who are in the UK, we really should put our focus on trying to get um, both the current uh, Conservative government to take further steps. So please, you know, write to your MPs. There is a petition at the moment um, uh, for Parliament uh, to address this issue, so I hope people will sign that. Um, I really encourage them to, you know, use all the avenues of um, democratic accountability in the UK to push the government to address this. But also, I would say we need to push the Labour Party to address this issue. You know, um, we're all aware that we may very soon have a Labour government. You know, Keir Starmer may in the next year or, or, or so be our next prime minister. And it's very important that um, we try to get uh, uh, Labour to break really what, what's been a kind of deafening silence on this issue and really engage uh, meaningfully with what's going on in Iran. And and were there, were there any writers or anyone else that you'd recommend apart oh, from yourself? Obviously, yeah, absolutely. Many many others who I follow and who um, in, you know really help me understand what's going on um, in, in in Iran. Um, uh, my colleague Ali Ansari, who's at St Andrews uh, University, has been writing some really insightful stuff um, on on Iran, and I encourage people to read that. Um, uh, Mahsa uh, Ali Mardani, who's a, a, a young scholar um, at Oxford, uh, the Oxford Internet Institute, she has done fantastic work on the whole question of, you know, how can we um, help Iranians gain access to the internet? How does that relate to the issue of sanctions? So I would really encourage people to to engage um, with her work. Um, and I have a wonderful colleague in in Washington, um, uh, Karim Sajjodpur, um, who has been, you know, writing really, really insightful work on um, what's going on um, uh, both within Iran and what's going on in terms of the policy debates in Washington. So really encourage people to engage with his work. Thanks so much to Roham for having time to chat. You can find Roham on Twitter at Dr. Roham Alvandi or at the Department of International History at the London School of Economics, where he's an associate professor. I've also popped a link in the podcast blurb to the petition for the government to maintain sanctions and introduce a visa ban on people linked to the Iranian regime. 
What else do you need to either soothe your panicked mind about the world or more likely make it worse? But you know, at least it's facts rather than a headline being shouted in your face that's made up of opinions someone imagined after eating too many refresher bars. Let me know who I should interview and what about. And you can do that by dropping me a line at the Parpolbro Twitter or Facebook or by emailing me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. <laughs> And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Who knows, by the time you've heard it, probably have an entirely new Prime Minister, Cabinet, Monarchy and James Bond. And they may all be the same person, as absolutely no one else is left. If you like a lot of chocolate on your biscuit, join our club. But if you like this podcast, it's a lot more helpful if you just tell other people to give it a listen. If you can afford to, please donate to the ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro or join the patreon.com forward slash parpolbro for which you get the sweet, sweet monthly reward of knowing you're a good human being. Please also give this podcast a nice five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or similar podcast holes. Danke schön to Acast, my brother Lars Skeptic and Cat Day. And this will be back next week when Liz Truss will no longer be Prime Minister, but due to a complete shortage of people wanting to step up to the Cabinet during such a crisis, she will be Chancellor, Health Secretary, Mail Delivery Attendant and Parliamentary Tour Guide for school groups, all of which she's fired from by the end of the following week. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by Therese Kofi's Pharmacy Services. What do you need? How much have you got? Pop by the garden door once it gets dark and Therese will make sure you get all the pills you need for the right price. If you're poor, it's twice as much because you're richer than you think. Stay for a chat and get 50% extra free as you have to use it there and then to last the conversation. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.